Hey everybody, welcome to the Rabbit Trails Podcast. Thanks so much for stopping by. Listen, a little bit of an intro again here. Uh, something happened with my mic, not really sure what happened. So the again, the, the sound quality is not what we would like it to be. It's not what you pay for when you think Rabbit Trails Podcast. So sorry about that. We will um, talk to the interns and punish them accordingly. Uh, to figure this out. Actually, just kidding. We don't have interns. But hey, if you would like to intern with us or if you know someone who would like to intern with us and uh, help us expand the um, the domination that is the Rabbit Trails podcast, we would love to have them. Uh, also, if you could click that little subscribe button that happens to be on your iTunes or whatever podcast listener service you use, it helps uh, you get our podcast. It helps us actually figure out who's listening and where they're listening from, helps us uh, decide a few other things. It's also easier for you. And in this day and age, if it's not easy for you, you're not going to do it. So please do subscribe. And it's this mutually beneficial relationship that we all get something from. We had a wonderful guest today. Sarah Blakeney joined us. Sarah is... um, a PhD, has a PhD in uh, millennials, actually, was her subject, and we spent a good deal of time talking to Sarah about her PhD, and the, the podcast jumps right into Sarah speaking, so none of this waste your time with hearing me and Garrick speak. We just got to the good stuff this time. Uh, hope you enjoy the podcast. Let us know your thoughts, and we'll see you next time. No, you won't, because this is a podcast. Anyway, without further ado, Sarah Blakeney. got my PhD in uh, divinity with an emphasis on practical theology, which is my background. I've been in Christian ministry for most of my adult life with youth ministry, then working with young adults. I have my master's in marriage and family therapy from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And so I just found, well, so most of my ministry career has been with the millennial generation, following Mm -hmm. them through their different life stages. And so, yeah, I just kind of developed a a love for them as a generation, um, their uniqueness. And in youth ministry, I just really loved having that heart-to-heart connection with the kids, which prompted me to go get the the counseling degree and then come back, go on staff at Highland Park Presbyterian Church, where Garrick is from, and do young adult ministry and kind of pick back up with them at that point. And I started to realize what a unique generation they are compared to the rest of us. Um, Barrett, I mean, you look like you're a millennial. I, I don't know. Forty-two. I don't know where that. Puts, I don't know where that puts me. I might be. A, I might be a millennial. I don't know. Am I on the cusp? Well, and and that's a good point because the generation, you know, with generational theory, the, all those dates are a little bit fluid, but it's a, usually about a twenty-year time span, and. Um, so, so I, I look at millennials from being born between 1981 and 2000, because that is, those are the dates that Strauss and Howe, who are kind of the major sociologists that um, talked about the millennials and wrote that seminal book, um, Millennials Rising. I think those are the dates that they used. So I just kind of use their dates. So anyway, I just, um, I, I really, as I came back to Highland Park Presbyterian Church and started 
really honing in on how different they are as a generation and wanting to explore that and wanting to know why. At the same time, my pastor said to me just in passing one day, he said, you know, I just came from a conference with a bunch of pastors and we were talking about how every 500 years, the church goes through a really big shift. Hmm. What I call me, Sarah, what I'm calling a true reformation. So you have these two phenomenon going on at the same time where you have this unique generation of the millennials coming alongside a time in history where the church is going through a reformation. So it really piqued my interest to study that more and go, okay, I have all this history where I've gotten to know the millennials, ministering to them, having those heart-to-heart connections with them. Meanwhile, I'm having a little bit of trouble getting people involved with programmatic ministry, getting involved with the institutional church. Could it be that we're that the church is going through a shift, going through a reformation? And if so, how do these two things connect? Which leads me to now my PhD topic, which is, which was the effective discipleship of millennials in missional communities. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to, to delve into this whole missional church movement curious if it could be the expression or the next iteration of this reformed church and if so is it resonating with the millennials and why so that that's kind of the background that led me to this and i've loved every minute i've I've never been so stressed out and so fulfilled (laughs) at the same time doing my phd so um so i go go ahead ahead, no well, okay. I, I, I'm well. So there's. I want to go down the, the long rabbit trail of millennials, and, um, you know your 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 dissertation, uh, and where where you came out with that. But I I, I do think it's just interesting the idea of of higher education, especially as we move through ministry. And so I just uh, share. Could you share a little bit about your experience at at University of Aberdeen and. And I mean, that just seems it's especially, you know, you, you come out of a Presbyterian background. So I'm sure being in Scotland, I did, that whole thing just fascinates me, uh, that 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 world. Um, and, but before you before you go completely down that road, did you ever run into Jeannie Hanger in, in Aberdeen? No, I didn't. OK, she's but a friend I, of ours out in California who is completing. I don't know where she is in her process of finishing up at Aberdeen, but she's she's okay. out, she's there as well. Well, and I did it distance learning mm-hmm. because um, <clears throat> being here in Fort Worth, Texas, married, husband with a big career, I kind of had my life settled here. And so that's actually how I landed on Aberdeen. I literally Googled PhD divinity programs, distance learning, um, and came upon this. And well, I want to choose my words carefully. I wanted it to be a place that I felt really proud to be a part of and, mm-hmm. you know, a great program that I could do via distance. And so surprisingly, there are very few PhD divinity distance learning programs. And so it, it just kind of, I just settled on it immediately. And the way it works in the UK, y'all probably know, it's probably like this in all of Europe, but even before you apply to the school, you reach out to a potential supervisor and you say, hey, here's my project, here's what I'm thinking of doing, would you supervise me? Which I did, I reached out to this incredible man named uh, 
Dr. Ken Jeffrey. He's one of the lecturers at Aberdeen. He is a pastor. Um, he's Irish, but he lives in Scotland and he, he just has a real pastor's heart. I can tell just by his bio. So I reached out to him, said, here's what I'm thinking. And he said, absolutely, I'd love to. He said, but the nature of your research I, is not my area of expertise. So I need to loop in a sociology professor as well, because mm -hmm. I wanted to do ethnographic study, which is where you literally immerse yourself in a people group um, for a period of time in order to get to know them from the inside out. So he said, I'm not as familiar with ethnographic studies, so let me loop in a, a sociology professor. So we looped in um, a Polish sociology professor at Aberdeen named Marta Sobietowska, and she was fabulous. She is a uh, feminist atheist who mm -hmm. studies religion. And oh, so cool. here I had this, this Irish-Scottish pastor and this Polish atheist feminist, and it was the most fabulous team. And they truly invested in me as a person and were there for me and provided incredible guidance. So all that to say, I wrote the proposal, applied to the school, got accepted, and then I was off and running with my program. So the whole, Garrick, the whole Scotland thing was just so cool. I mean, University of Aberdeen, it's a big giant public university founded in 1495. And so just to be a part of history, and it's really known, it's one of the top research schools in the world. Um, I can't remember what it's, its most current ranking is, but so it is very much geared towards PhDs, those who want to research and teach, which is, by the way, why I went for my PhD and not my DMIN is because the PhD is the teaching degree. Yeah. And that's what I love to do is teach public speaking and counseling. So that's kind of what I wanted to pursue. Um, yeah, so I'll pause there. Cool. Um, well, okay, so, uh, Millennials. Uh, so what are they good so for? No. You know, so <laughs> obviously there is, you know, they've kind of their generation has kind of gotten a bad rap, I would say, uh, in in some sense. But Sarah, you've you've seen and are starting to maybe pull out what the the um, the 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 good things about that. I mean, I I'll be honest. So just for any millennials listening out there, I, I think it's interesting. I'm a Gen Xer, Sarah, you're a Gen Xer. I think it's interesting that Gen Xers are really having a hard time creating good leaders. Uh, we, we, we tend to, I think we're a generation that tends to go, yeah, whatever. You know, I, I think of the breakfast club, right. You know, that final scene of like defiance at, <laughs> at the at the school, the world, we're just kind of like, we're generations like, yeah, we don't, I don't, it's going to be all right. I don't, I'm not too interested in, in having to take over the world, uh, not not that or or make the world that much better. You know, I want to do my part, but um, so but okay, so that's our maybe our sin as a generation. Millennials has been real easy to point out what their problems are, but what what have you seen that are the the positive things? What when you start to see this nexus of what you think is reformation and the millennials? What are the good things that millennials are bringing to to our society and to to the church? Yeah, that's a great question. Great question. I think the maybe what gets to the heart of the matter, plain and simple, is that 
they are representative of a huge philosophical and epistemological shift in the Western world. And so what I mean by epistemological is how, how knowledge is attained. How do we know what we know? And so for the past 500 years, and so, I mean, rabbit trail, but interestingly, we're talking about the 500 year shift of the church. So just keep that in mind as we're talking about that as a backdrop. But for the past 500 years, we've lived in an enlightenment based way of viewing the world. Rationalism, logic, facts based. And so that naturally has crept into our theology where preaching is paramount, information gathering, using the Bible as a proof text is, is the way that we approach Christianity. Nothing wrong with that. That's fabulous. That was a reaction against what was going on beforehand with all the mysticism of the medieval times, etc. So we needed this rational approach to our faith and to our Christian tradition. That's worked for us for 500 years, all the way up to us, the Generation X. If you believe what some of the philosophers are saying, that we now live in a postmodern epistemological world, then what that means is we are in the middle of a huge shift from rational thinking, enlightenment-based orientation to the world to a postmodern orientation to the world. Um, the way there's this book called the new Copernicans. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, uh, mm. John David seal and he, he based, yeah. Were you about to say Garrett? No, I, just, I, just literally, I just saw it, it. It popped up on a, a crew workplace, uh, uh, post recently. I saw that. Yeah. So it, it piqued my interest as well. Okay. Yeah. It's the a new, fascinating the new Copernicans, movie. new Copernicans. John David Seal, S-E-E-L. And he does a good job articulating the difference. And the reason it's called the New Copernicans is he says that this shift from enlightenment-based thinking to postmodernism is analogous to a Galileo, <laughs> you know, Earth-centric view of the world to a Copernican view of the world. So he's calling millennials new Copernicans because millennials are the first fully postmodern generation. Whereas the rest of us, you know, Garrick, you and I, and possibly Barrett, as if he's a genetic. I'm, I'm, I'm a bridge. I'm a bridge person. I was born in '78, so that puts me square in that questionable period of what really. Yeah which would explain much of my life. It's just been one existential question after the other. <laughs> well, that's good. We need bridges. We need people who can culturally translate for us. So that's perfect. Um, so, okay. So, okay. So that, that's the background. This, this change from enlightenment based thinking to postmodern thinking. So postmodern is the exact opposite of enlightenment where enlightenment is left brain, Facts, structure, um, postmodern is right brain. It's intuitive. It's felt knowledge rather than than um, digging in and, and scientific scientific knowledge. That's the best. Those are the best words I can pull up right this second. Um, 
So if the church is still operating in an enlightenment-based approach, mm. then we are speaking a different epistemological language than the millennials who are fully postmodern. So Garrick, I'm coming back to your to answer your question, which what's, what are the positives of the millennial generation? Um, everything that I've said so far is neither bad nor good. Yeah. But I think what's positive about the millennials is that they are providing a course correction for maybe the church that has gotten way, way off into facts, scientific knowledge, to the exclusion of intuition, art, feeling, um, relationships, relationships fits into that, you know? So like, for instance, with my, my research, um, millennials really, really valued stories and narratives. So a testimony became the postmodern version of a sermon, still presenting the same truth of the gospel, still presenting who Jesus is, but it is encased in a postmodern form rather than enlightenment form, which would be sitting in a pew, listening to an expository, is that the word? Expository preaching from the pulpit. So um, I think we, because of this gap in our understanding, we've totally been dogging the millennials going, oh, well, y'all are just entitled. You, You care more about relationships than the workplace or applying yourself or whatever but they have a fundamentally different way of seeing the world. They're going to prioritize relationships. And so what does that mean? I mean, they, they look at their parents, 50% divorce rate and go, hold on a minute. I'm just not gonna check the boxes of go to school, graduate, get married, get a job, earn my keep for 30 years, at the expense of my kids and my marriage, and then end up the way y'all are. I'm, I'm gonna turn that on my head. And so here's an, another point, and interrupt me, cause wind me up and I can just keep going because this has been my life for the last five years. Keep um, going. Okay, okay. Um, concurrent with this huge epistemological shift, you have what, what Christian sociologist Arnett is calling um, a new stage of life, which is emerging adulthood. And so where before you had young adulthood, you're in college, figuring out life, and then, then people were getting married and getting settled in jobs earlier. So you graduated, settled down, started a family, and started your career. Um, millennials for whatever reason, maybe for what I cited a minute ago, that they have seen how that hasn't been the, the end all be all of existence. They are postponing those milestones, postponing getting married, postponing having kids, postponing settling into a lifelong career. I can't remember the statistics of how many different jobs millennials have, but it's because they're not just willing to, to pay the dues. They want their life to have meaning and uh, 
make a real impact on the world. Not that the rest of us don't, but again, that right brain relationship is paramount. Meaning is paramount. So it's what Arnett is calling emerging adulthood, which is the time in your 20s where it's a time of self-exploration, trying on different personas, dating lots of people, living together, um, questioning your faith. I mean, you name it. And, and so it's been misconstrued in my mind as narcissism because it's so self-focused. But Arnett is saying, no, it's naturally supposed to be self-focused because you're trying to figure out who you are. And there's a difference between that and narcissism. Mm -hmm. And so he goes into this whole thing, like the, anytime in popular media, you see millennials are narcissistic. Um, it's usually this woman named Jean Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E, -E, and she's out of San Diego. And she's the one that's done a lot of research about millennials and being narcissistic. But Arnett's kind of on the other side and has done some other studies refuting what she said. And, and he says, no, no, I think your research is flawed. I really think it's because of this idea of emerging adulthood. So, so just to bring it home, land the plane, Garrick, and answer to your question, I think the reason that that's a positive is millennials are willing to question the conventions, social conventions that we've held for the last, you know, whatever, I mean, several hundred years as a nation here in the U.S., but maybe 500 years in, in, in enlightenment-based reasoning, which is why, why, can't, why can't I explore more? Why do I have to step into these adult milestones? And um, I want to have a voice. I want to have something to say. And so, yeah, I'm going to join a, a, a career, a, a company, and say, wait, why does it have to be this way? and job hop and all this stuff. And it's not that they're flaky, it's that they are really wanting to find meaning and purpose in their lives. So my, my brother has um, a business, a uh, small marketing firm, and um, he is, it's a really interesting niche marketing firm where he helps uh, like chimney sweeps, plumbers, and small, you know, two to 10 truck firms with their marketing. And because those are really underserviced and everything. And so he uh, started getting a lot of millennials uh, to come and work for him. And he would echo a lot of the same things. Uh, he's able to pay almost like 25 to 30% less because he hits a lot of those. He gives them voice and they find meaning and purpose in what they do. And so there a lot of the people who come and work for him really are invested in kind of what they're doing because they see how they're helping these small firms become uh, meaningful and impactful and kind of he see they see tangible results in ways that just working for the man or whatever else. And so he was able to grow his business in a period where it would have been impossible for, for normal terms. Does that, does that sound like a kind of, does that, sound like it parallels with the, the, the research that, that you found? Absolutely. I think that's a great example, a great case study. And it speaks a lot, um, it speaks very highly of him that he would hire these people with that in mind, because that probably really resonates with the millennials, that they see him not just as a boss, but someone who wants to 
invest in them as a person and help draw out that inherent value, that meaning, that purpose. So I can see that being a really healthy and exciting um, environment, work environment for these millennials that, that causes them to become more hardworking and ambitious in the process. Yeah, I think it works for him because he is never, he does not fit the Gen X mold. <laughs> He's, he is anti, not social in that way, but he just, he just, he's, he's anti-conventional. So he, it, you know, he was the, he was the guy who left home at 18 to go pursue his music dreams. And, you know, it just was, he wasn't going to do what everyone said he should. I mean, he, he could have gotten every academic, he got terrible grades his whole life and could have gotten every academic award because he was always the smartest guy in the room, but he just didn't fit. So for him, it kind of makes sense. It's kind of like, he was always questioning and never allowed to question and all those things. So that, that makes sense. So how does it work out though? How does it work out in the church? If, if the church has been on this journey of, you know, enlightenment values um, and now the millennials are coming and they're underappreciated and they're questioning things. Um, how does it work out? You, you looked at, discipleship within missional communities how does it work out there then how does discipleship look how does how does it all yeah how does it work out yeah <clears throat> that's a great question and a big question and something that i think the church needs to wrestle with more and more like so i can just tell you a little bit about my experience and and what i found to be points of connection and points of effective discipleship so this whole missional movement, the idea that rather than having the church be um, an attractional, extractional model, whereby that those words of Alan Hirsch, who's a missional theologist and he theologian, he talks about um, attracting people to a church, big building, you know, the stuff we're used to, and by doing that you're extracting them from their culture and you're inculcating them into a church subculture that's the old way of doing it what he's saying is we need to switch that that's sort of that enlightenment rational way of thinking and that what we can do is instead be missional incarnational where instead of bringing people to church we're taking church to people and establishing kind of missional outposts and making them the ecclesia out in the world, so to speak. So for my field work um, with my PhD, I chose two different missional communities that I wanted to choose. One that was, it was a, a downtown church plant um, that was, had a, it was like a, a church and a coffee shop. And they had the regular Sunday morning worship they had a preacher, they had a worship band, they had some of those, you know, regular things that we think about with church, but they were, it was 85 to 90% millennial constituency, and they self-identified as a missional church. So they were planted in a place where they felt like it was a mission field, which was downtown Fort Worth. Then my other fieldwork site was I wanted um, something that was a contrast to kind of like a marginalized or disenfranchised population. So I joined a missional um, ministry called Velvet Hearts that had an outreach to strip clubs. 
in the Fort Worth area. So every other Friday night, I would join a group of women and we would go to five different strip clubs in the Fort Worth area and go into the dressing rooms, establish relationship with the dancers there. And basically the best way to describe it is just kind of be chaplains to them, to take church to them and say, hey, how can we pray for you this week? How can we connect you with social services? Um, do you need a Bible? Just meet them at their point of need and establish community among them. So that was a total adventure, needless to say. And so um, I'm trying to answer your question about what's working. I think just the idea of being missional for one thing worked because if you think about millennials many of them are unchurched but many of them are de-churched they maybe grew up as kids going to church they've heard the gospel maybe they've even accepted Christ but they do not have a relationship with a local church so to go in and just try and evangelize the way we have in the past now think about it with that enlightenment-based mindset that doesn't work. You're going in and saying, I'm right, you're wrong. Let me give you the facts of why you need to change how you're thinking and come over to our side. Now let me remove you from your culture and attract you to this big giant church to sit and listen to preaching and involve you in the Christian subculture. That whole thing is not speaking millennials language. So the millennial, the missional thing turns all that on its head and goes not evangelism unto salvation, although of course that's still needed, but just missional discipleship unto sanctification, involving them in a church community where you can do ongoing discipleship. So, um, uh, well, let me pause there for a second and collect my thoughts. Do y'all, what, what follow-up questions do you have? Well, so so it's interesting because what the, the two things that you hit there that the relational aspect is 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 very key. That it seems that that what's so if if the relational aspect is so key, then random hey let's go out and quote unquote do evangelism um, and discipleship takes on a new everything takes on a new form because it's through the eyes of relationship and through the experience of relationship um, so would so yeah so the the random hey let's go out and take this booklet that has facts or a presentation of an idea that knock someone on, knock can on doors yeah that can someone can acknowledge or agree to is off-putting to an entire generation of people because it it's the very thing that they don't connect with at all. It's there's nothing, it's not relational about that. Now, one can establish relationship with someone pretty quickly, but you you that's just not something that, yeah. So would you say that that is, I mean, I, that, I, there's a statement. Let me find a question in that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I think you're right on. And, and to give you an example, the co-founder of Velvet Hearts was a former stripper herself. So she would go in, she got a tattoo on her arm that said, I am her. And she'd go in there and say, I'm you. I was right where you are now. I've been right on that stage. And, and Jesus Christ is the one who changed my life. Let me tell you my story and then it'll resonate with you. So that was her approach. 
Um, and then another example of that is, uh, and this is another a practice, hospitality, missional hospitality, I think is a real wave of the future that could be extremely effective with millennials because you're going into their natural habitat and providing a place for connection as the host, but also as a guest. And that's something I didn't mention earlier. There's a real mutuality mm. that millennials desire. That's where that thing comes in with work, the workplace or church. People, they want equal footing. They want a voice. They want to want to be mentored for sure. But they also want to be reverse mentored. They want it. They want it to be a peer-to-peer -peer relationship. Okay. So one really interesting, effective, cool story is with this Velvet Hearts thing, They're, they are part of a larger network of ministries that go, you know, it's all over the United States and even I think in London and some other places in Europe where um, they go into to strip clubs and brothels and you name it to share the love of Christ. So the, the mother organization, they go to this sex convention <laughs> In Chicago every year and this is a place where people in the sex industry from all over the world come and set up booths and sell their wares or their clothing or stripper poles whatever it is and so this it's um, it's called strip club church is the, the big networks and so they set up a booth they are literally one of the sponsors I mean this is out there y'all one of the sponsors of this convention, they go and they set up a booth in the midst of all this nasty stuff. And they set up a big sign that says, Jesus loves strippers and Jesus loves porn stars. And they have Bibles set out. It's actually the book of Luke. <clears throat> and the, it's called the Jesus loves strippers Bible because that's what the cover says, Jesus loves strippers. And then interspersed in, within the pages of the book of Luke, it has testimonies of former strippers that have come out of the industry and it's their story. And so they'll just have, they had piles. And I, so I went, I went to this convention and was in the booth participating. So they have these stacks of Bibles and then they also have a t-shirt machine where you can get a t-shirt made that says, Jesus loves strippers, Jesus loves porn stars. And it's just a ministry of presence. It's a ministry of hospitality. They are there in the world. It's not attractional, extractional, it's missional incarnational, being the hands, feet, heart of Jesus right there in the midst of, this, of the sex industry. Mm -hmm. So when I was there, the line for these Bibles and t-shirts wrapped around the booth, a hundred wow. people deep. It wow. was incredible to see. And I've got chills just telling y'all about it. Mm -hmm. People were so hungry and willing to receive a Bible, um, some to receive prayer. You know, inevitably the, the volunteers would stand there and engage in conversation with some of the men and women there, establish relationships. And, you know, I, I witnessed someone talking to a stripper who was a pastor's daughter 
Hmm. And said, oh my gosh, I haven't had a conversation about faith in years and years. She was there hmm. trying to become a porn star. That That's why she was there. As the volunteer talked to her, and then a group of us said, hey, can we pray for you? And she said, sure, I'd love that. We stood there in the middle of this convention, prayed for this girl. She's bawling, crying. She's like, wow, I haven't had anyone pray for me in years. Mm -hmm. And so one of the women who lived there in Chicago said, hey, can I get your phone number? Let's follow up and have coffee. You want to? And she said, oh, I would love that. So right then and there, a discipleship relationship was being formed and established right there. And just as a, a conclusion to that story, um, there was a, a woman who, while I was at that convention, and all the volunteers were kind of all coming from the strip church network all over the country to convene and volunteer at this thing. So we'd have these breakout sessions with speakers and whatever encouraging and equipping these volunteers to go back to their own ministries. So one of the speakers was a woman um, who had been a, a well-known porn star who years before had gone to one of the booths, befriended a female pastor, got reconnected to her Christian faith and the local church. She rejoined the church, but now she is one of the, the leaders Awesome. of this ministry oh, and preaches to others and then goes back. So that's an, I think that's a real life example of something that's missional, grassroots, relational, leading with the love of Jesus, not just evangelism and establishing discipleship relationships out there in the mission field. So it's, it's interesting because as you're naming that, I'm one, it's just an incredible. Um, but two, I'm, I'm Harken back to a, there's a, a pastor, I don't know where he is now, and he does a podcast. His name is Mike Erie, but he did a series on Ephesians back when I was out in California. And one of the things that he highlighted from his, you know, whatever he was studying in Ephesians was the idea that, um, you know, the idea of adoption is so important in Ephesians. And, um, and that in Ephesus, there was a hill where the, the practice of exposure was, um, was practiced and where they would take young unwanted children and set them outside the city gates to be exposed to the elements and that there was a that either wolves or you know animals or whatever would would take care of the kid um and so christians uh or slave uh traders would go out and collect these children and raise them eventually as slaves and and sell them off so christians started going out outside the um the walls and gathering the children and adopting them themselves. And that's one of the reasons why the idea of adoption is so important in, in Ephesians, um, because some of those people, no doubt themselves, would have been adopted in the same way. And so they understood the importance of adoption. But as you're, as you're saying that and you're giving the story of that, all of those elements are there. There's the relational element. Um, there's the, the there's all the elements that are there. It's, it's interesting to me how, so as I'm, as you're processing through this, it's kind of like, Maybe the weird ones aren't generation at generation, you know, um, the millennial generation. Maybe it was everyone else who came before who had swung the pendulum so far that they had forgotten some of these very important parts of things. I mean, because yeah, those are important elements to come back into it. Absolutely. And I think that that's a great point um, that like Seal, the author that I mentioned, and then James K.A. Smith, that postmodern yeah. evangelical writer, are advocating to going back to um, 
a pre-enlightenment church that's more like the early church, you know, that they're using that as a model. And I think that, that that's why you're going back to some of those things that are just fundamental to human relationships. So I, I think in some ways, the first century, we can't go back to the first century church. It was very unique in some ways, but in, in the sense that it is a pre-enlightenment type of church, you know, I think that that's a, totally what you're touching on and, and is, is really important to keep in mind. But we can go back to a church that doesn't have the seat of power because that's where we are. Mm-hmm. So some of some of that enlightenment stuff was operating out of it was a position of power and, and prestige within a culture, and so some of the the basic assumptions worked, but those basic assumptions are gone. It seems to me so so it doesn't work anymore to just argue a a fact because the assumptions that undergird that fact are gone, and so much of the, so much of what helps to undergird that seems to in in, in my experience in, in Sweden, I I would say that the hospitality that we do is the um, I think if if the facts are the skeleton of the gospel, then this is the meat, skin, and and clothing of the gospel that it helps to put texture to it that otherwise wouldn't be there. Garrick, you, you started a, to say something. Yeah, no, I've got a comment and then a, and then a question. I was I was just going to think this is fascinating conversation right now because I think I can see us that we're all kind of coming together in this one main point of of which has kind of been a thesis of mine as living in Spain, which is you know more Mediterranean culture, but also postmodern and seeing this, this shift, right? The shift we need to make in how we minister, which is you know, part of secularization. But what I find fascinating is also it's a generational. Uh, and I hadn't, Sarah, you helped me see something that I hadn't seen before, just think of it in, this is a generational thing as well that's happening and happened uh, and and the importance of that, but I, I think for me a little bit of a thesis I've been playing around with is that 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 this this shift is helping us go back in, in a lot of ways um, and and do ministry maybe a little not that not I don't you know I think we'd be careful we're not saying that the last five hundred years was bad it, you know but it's it it was we we did it as best we could and it was it had God God blessed it but now we have this opportunity to really go back and examine. Uh, how did Jesus really do ministry? How did how did the early church really do ministry? And are you know are we lining up with that and really reevaluate our missiology, our theology? I think it's good. Within that, I have a question. So obviously, there's there's a huge tension uh, that that's created now. And so we we Barrett and I we see it in our organization. We see it. We hear about it. Is even you know in the, I think there's uh, as you look in America, that there might be a political tension that's really arisen between two generations, just a little bit between two generations. Uh, and sometimes I feel stuck between those two generations, I think being Gen X. Um, but what, okay. So, so here, I'm going to just put it, put it real on the two. So two questions, what, what, what do millennials or that millennial generation, I think you're right in, in supposing they're leading a kind of reformation. What do they need to do to win the boomers or, or win, win the generation that in some sense is really fighting them. And what are the, and what do the, the older generation that, that is kind of fighting, of course, I'm also assuming that there is a conflict. So I'd like to see your opinion on the, the tension that's between the generations and the future. What do the, the older generation that's saying, no, uh, we're not, we got to go back to what we did 50 years ago. How, what, what do they need to hear and what are the changes they need to, to, to make to, to, 
give space, but also to help this generation maybe be the generation that really leads us into a, a new, uh, a new expression. That's such a good question because just as we're shouldn't demand that the postmodern millennials be retrofitted into an enlightenment based church, but make room for them. Neither should we negate the church, the enlightenment based church that's worked for the rest of us for so long. I mean, it's, it's the enlightenment, it's the reformation that put a Bible in each of our hands, you know, in our own language in the, in the vernacular where we didn't have to have a, a, a priest up front reading the Latin for us. You know, I mean, there, there's a, a danger of the pendulum swinging too far in the other direction. So I think, I think the older generation can approach the younger generation with humility and saying, I want to talk about faith with you. And in doing so, they can transmit the truth of the gospel and leave a legacy of the the principles and I mean because the the truth doesn't change you know I mean the gospel is the gospel and we need preaching we need Bible study we need we, we can't just let the younger generation do whatever they want and wander into heresy so there needs to be this transmission of the Christian tradition and faith from one generation to another. But I think that to approach the younger generation with humility and say, I wanna learn from you, even as I am transmitting the truth of the word of God to you. Um, the, the older generation doesn't have to give up their old ways of doing church. We still need the attractional extractional model that is still working for a lot of people and so i don't want to make the claim that everyone has to change to accommodate millennials but i think there needs to be some meeting in the middle um well i say meet in the middle i do think that the older generation needs to leave the four walls of the church in order to go engage the millennial generation because they are not coming to the institutional traditional church. So that's kind of a non-negotiable maybe, is that the older generations, they don't have to give up their ways of doing church, but they do need to realize in order to have a successful transmission of the faith to the next generation, they're gonna have to go outside of the walls a little bit. And whether that's business, family, I mean, there's a lot of sectors where that can happen. Ooh, I have a follow-up point on that in a second. Meanwhile, um, the younger generation should come with their fresh perspective and so that there can be a meeting of the minds so that there can be, a, be a, an equipping and training of the next generation, not to be clones of what's come before, but to be postmodern versions of pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets and apostles moving forward. That's kind of an abstract nebulous answer, but I think that it, that might be a template that could be applied in a bunch of different ways. And there's this thing, 
called Missional University that I'm involved with now that I'd love to tell you all about that sort of fits mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. Garrick, I'll pause. Is there something you wanted to say or ask as a follow-up of what I just said? Well, I have a follow-up. Yeah. So, or it's, it's a comment follow-up. So if we think of, um, you know, when I was growing up, apologetics, man, that was the thing, right? So you had all these, you know, Christian apologists who were huge and, you know, some of them have fallen, um, unfortunately, but, uh, and turned out not to be that great. But one of them who, well, seems to be okay. Uh, I'm trying to search for my words there, uh, is William Lane Craig, who I've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of times. And, um, you know, Craig has a particular, if you've ever watched any of Craig's stuff, he has a particular way of argumentation. Um, it's very, very structured. And that seems to me, it comes out, no one, no one's more structured. And to be honest, his arguments are tight. I mean, the guy's brilliant. Um, but I was listening to a debate or a discussion that he was a part of in Canada. And I forget, I think it was called the Monk series, um, debate series. And he was on there with Jordan Peterson and a woman from Harvard who is married to, or not married to, but partners with, um, he's a humanist and I'm totally forgetting his name. But anyway, he was, anyway, doesn't matter. She's really brilliant as well. Um, and it seemed to me that in that, Craig had the better argument out of anybody. It was tighter than anybody, but Craig lost the crowd by far because Craig's argument was way too tight. It, there was very little personal in it. He was reasoning from a level, and I don't wanna say that William Lane Craig shouldn't go around and do what he does anymore. I've benefited greatly from William Lane Craig, but it seems to me that every generation has to find a way in order to communicate and take the, the kind of, take the, take the meat of the, the, the generation that came before it, but retailer it to the things that that generation needs to, needs to forward because every generation in some way is a pendulum swing from the last generation because it's in us to go, Hey, that really didn't work very well. I don't like the way that worked. And so we kind of, we kind of swing it to the other way to kind of go, Hey, this is how we're going to try to do it. And I guarantee you, my kids are going to swing in some direction um, because they don't like the way that we kind of, you know, did things. There's, there's plenty to complain about from their perspective, trust me. Uh, and they're right about it. But anyway, so the, the point being, so it seems to me that, that what we, in, in all of this, there needs to be an appreciation for both sides of it. And the older generation needs to say, of course, you're not going to do it the way we would do it. But as you are taking and translating into and appreciating the things that you need to do, so relational and mutuality and all these things, don't forget that some of this is, is really good. Um, but it does seem to me that, that people like Craig have made an incredible contribution to Christian thought and Christian preaching and everything else. But that can only take us so far and that there needs to be some corrective. But are you saying that it's a corrective or are you saying, you seem to be saying even maybe so much more that it's a, a reformation of a 500 year level rather than it's a corrective to the previous generation, or am I getting those confused? 
Well, first of all, I think you articulated so well what I was trying to say a minute ago about the mutuality of humility and respect shown by both generations. Um, <clears throat> I think time will tell if it's a true reformation. If so, what that means is that the substance of the gospel never changes, of course, but the form in which the church relates to the culture totally changes. And so what I'm interested in is, is this missional movement going to be the new container of the church moving forward? Um, it, if this 500-year pattern holds true, that might, that might well be so, but I have no idea. Um, it's, it was a book called The Great Emergence by Phyllis Tickle, and she called it yeah. a rummage sale. That Every 500 years, the church goes through a rummage sale and figures out what works and what is uh, superfluous for, the, for that particular generation and culture. So we'll see. So I think that remains to be seen. But I do think in the near term, there are some necessary course corrections um, that, are, that are taking place from one generation to another which is exactly what you just articulated. You know, that truth and love, you need both, but maybe a simplistic way of saying it is for the last few generations, we've led with truth and had love. And this way we need to just switch it a little bit, lead with love, i.e. relationships, out, you know, that kind of stuff, and then and then have the truth coming behind because you need both. You need both. So uh, we still need people like Craig. We need apologetics. Yeah. We need the arguments, but perhaps not going into the culture and leading with that kind of stuff, but leading with the missional outpost, <laughs> outpost in a sex convention and then coming along with the, the truth, the the principles, the the proof texts, even you know of why that that are buttressing. Why are you so different? Why are you loving me when no one else is? Uh, and if you don't mind, let me just do one little rabbit trail real quick. Another incredible example was in interviewing some of the sex workers here in Texas. There's a woman who has one of these ministries out in West Texas. Garrick, she goes to Midland. San Angelo, yeah. Amarillo, and Abilene. And there is a drag show that she goes to in Abilene, Texas. Oh, wow. I didn't. And does kind of what I did with the strip club ministry, but with the, in the drag show. So she said the first time she went in, she had to pass through a picket line outside mm. saying, you know, you're going to hell. It was all these Christians that were protesting the drag show. She went inside and she led with love because what she did, remember I told you about the Jesus love strippers and all that stuff. She made her own materials. They were like coffee mugs and t-shirts and all this stuff that says Jesus loves drag queens and Jesus loves L G B Q, whatever, all that stuff. She, came, she said, I went through the picket line. I came in with my arm load into the drag show. And I said, hey, <clears throat> I'm just here to show the love of Jesus. And I wanted to drop off these products and was wondering if I could just come and watch the show and, and be here. Well, that was so ingratiating to them. She totally hit it off with the manager. They put up the... <laughs> 
all these tumblers and coffee mugs up on the bar. So anyone that comes in sees these things that say Jesus loves LGBTQ. And she said she started going in there with her team and they'd sit down and they would, you know, watch the show. And then the manager would say, her name's Jazz. Jazz, come here. She, he said, I want you to go up on stage and uh, just take five minutes and tell everyone what you're doing here. Oh, wow. And she said yeah. the first time she freaked out. She was like, what? She <laughs> said, go up there. So she said, I've, every time I go to, it's like once a month, every time I go to this club, I have five minutes where I get up there and I present the gospel and I'm basically giving a mini sermon. Wow. Yeah. And the, kind of the star of the show is this young man. I think he goes by her. So she, she's the star of the show. She grew up in a Christian home, went to Abilene Christian University. When she told her father that she was gay and doing drag, he said, well, I don't love you anymore. And I mm. doubt that God does either. So needless to say, he, she walked away from her faith at that point. So here comes Jazz leading, and here's, here's my larger point, leading not with apologetics, but with love, the love of Jesus, and established a relationship with this person. They text, she prays for him. They, they, talk, they have, have Bible study together through text or on the phone. And she leads with love and says, listen, if you don't get anything else, you need to know that Jesus loves you. Mm -hmm. He loves you and he will never stop loving you. And she said, then I'm coming along behind with scriptures that back that up. Mm -hmm. Scriptures that are, that are discipling him and leading him into the truth of who God is. But she, but she said, for me to go in there and say you're wrong and here's why, like those picketers outside, that's going to fall on deaf ears because he's heard that before. And in fact, he's heard it from the people closest to him in his life. And he is experiencing that as rejection. So I think that that's a really great example of what it looks like to lead without how you need truth and love. But perhaps we need to shift now to leading with love and letting truth follow rather than leading with truth and then hoping that we exhibit some sort of love in the midst of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's powerful. I, you, two things keep going through my head is that truth, if, if that becomes our focus or our, our main or primary focus, what we end up doing is we teach skills rather, rather than compassion or, or, you know, emotional intelligence, uh, one, one could say, or love. Um, and the other thing is, as you were saying that I literally had Philippians two, five through 11 going through my head. She did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied herself and came, took on the form of a bond servant that, that she just stepped into that and said, I'll serve. I'll serve. What do you need? Yeah. These people aren't, you know, quote unquote, worth it. And neither were we like this is she's modeling that I will empty myself for the sake of for the sake of the God who loves. And what is the result of that? The name which is above every name that he's given. And that so I, that that to me is is a let's say a personification 
of, of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Uh, that's powerful. powerful. That's so powerful. I think there's also a verse in Corinthians or something about love and truth. And if you don't. You're love. only a, you're only allowed to read that at weddings. <laughs> I think, yeah, we read it a lot at weddings. and But there's, there's, well, and I, I do have, a, I, I, you know, I have a strong, when you read the New Testament, read what Jesus was doing. I think at Jesus come today, Jesus would be the guy walking into this. I don't know if you go into the strip clubs, uh, but he would be going into the places like that to. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'd go be talking to the strippers outside the. He'd he'd uh, figure out how to reach him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Without yes, he would would be un, completely unashamed and completely you know, uh, powerful experience for whoever met him. But, uh, but I think you know we would probably have a hard time seeing Jesus uh, in our in our sometimes you know in our own context and in the way we've sometimes made it about being against things and not leading with love, but, but leading with truth. Mm-hmm. So, I, so this, yeah. this may be, this may be a, a rabbit trail too far, but I have a particular, uh, you, you, you brought up first Corinthians 13, which this is, this is where I, I get. So Paul spends 12 chapters berating the Corinthian church. And then he drops chapter 13 and we like to use it as this fluffiness. He, it's a rebuke. He's saying, what's wrong? Like he, he is absolutely, it's, it's this dripping with contempt, sarcasm. I'm going to lay it on you because you don't get it sort of thing. And he finishes chapter 13 and then he goes back to berating them. I don't think that it, I don't think that it's a parenthesis of feel good. I think that it's a parenthesis of you've missed it. And it like, so in some sense, Ooh, I got, I got emotional. here. Um, so anyway, so, so, uh, those who know me will, will know that that's not the first time. Um, so anyway, so I, I, I don't know. Am, am I, what do you all think about that? Because I often think I, I read that and I go, I don't think, I feel like I'm in the middle of the Princess Bride. I do not think it is what you think it is, you know? <laughs> anyway, there's that's no question there. It's just a response. <laughs> yeah, I've never thought of it in that context before, San, you know, sandwiched by the, the other surrounding passages so i i can't even speak to that i think that's a, such yeah. a good point i think i'm i'm of the opinion that if philippians chapter 2 if it if you don't read it and it doesn't scare you half to death and make you have to go change your shorts we're not reading it correctly and if that's the picture of love then that means what paul is saying in in first corinthians 13 echoes that and, and and I admit, I don't do it well at, at all. I am a self-centered, you know, like, I mean, I just want to focus on me. And, but time and again, I go back to that. So, so then the millennial generation. So I, I'll, I'll ask this question then. The millennial generation is those who are coming up into leadership now. What does their leadership look like? And then how is, my, my follow-up question to that will be, what is the next generation, is it Generation Z that's coming after millennial generation? What is Generation Z carrying into then um, from millennials and how is it looking different if you can speak to those two things? So how are they leading, I guess, would be the first question. Okay. I think, um, are you talking about Christian leadership or just leadership in general? Take both. I don't know. Whichever you want to do. I mean, yeah, whichever you feel comfortable answering. Well, I think because millennials have a less compartmentalized 
view of life. They, they view life more holistically than the older generations. So there's not this idea that church leadership should be the paid professionals where you're a member of a church and you tithe so that the quote unquote paid professionals can do the ministry, whether it's preaching or even being the missionaries. Millennials are holistic. So every, they see life as a big congruent whole. whole. So that being said, if they are believers, that's going to permeate every area of their life. So I think in terms of leadership, it's not going to be, oh, I'm going to go into vocational ministry and I'm going to be a church leader or a Christian leader by being a pastor or being a missionary. I mean, they will. I mean, I'm putting asterisks by all these because, of course, these will continue to exist. But I think by and large, what's happening is that there's going to be a trend towards making wherever you are your mission field, whatever sector of society you're in. And in fact, I know Crew has adopted this seven mountains concept of society. I don't know if they call it mountains. Y'all call it spheres, seven spheres. And uh, gates might be what they're calling it. Gates. Okay. The, the other fieldwork site, the church in downtown Fort Worth, called it streets. So their whole idea was to raise up the next generation of leaders by equipping them to go out and make disciples in their particular street that they were called to. And so those seven sectors, whether it's business, government, education, arts and entertainment, I think one of them was health and vitality, they called it, religion, which includes the church, and then there's a seventh that I can't pull up, business. Um, they were all about having these breakout sessions where they'd help you determine what is your street that you're called to and how can we equip you? Again, not to just bring people and throw them over the walls of the church so that they could be preached to, but to go out onto your respective street and holistically as a whole person, be who you're created to be, share the gospel, baptize people. I mean, he's like, guys, y'all can baptize. Go out and he said, you know, this is what the Great Commission was. And so in terms of leadership, I think what it is, is not just asking, okay, millennial, millennials, are y'all called to vocational ministry? But actually saying, what street are you already called to? Where are you planted where you can bloom in your Christian ministry? And this is where I'm really excited about this startup Christian university that I'm a part of called Missional University. And when I say startup, I mean, we have just a handful of students and we're still getting coursework up and running, but the whole thing is designed to have bachelor's, master's, and eventually PhD programs where millennials and Gen Z can come um, be a student there and it's, it's not a seminary because seminaries are mostly designed to train people for vocational ministry. It's not a Bible college, which is usually a, a four-year institution where you have your normal degree and then you have some Bible folded into that. 
in a wonderful way, but you come out personally enriched more than vocationally equipped. It's a third way of doing Christian education. And mm -hmm. it is by helping people know what street they are called to and making it a platform for ministry. So I'm hoping, I think this might be the wave of the future. And to answer your question about Gen Z, I don't know a whole lot about Gen Z, but I do know they say that in, again, back to Strauss and how these guys that, that came up with this idea that generations are cyclical, that you have, like you said, Barrett, one generation reacts against the excesses of the previous generation. And that ends up sort of being cyclical. So mm -hmm. where we are with Gen, uh, with millennials, millennials are kind of like the GI generation where they want a cause to be a part of where the GIs was World War II. They were self-sacrificing. They wanted to be part of a larger cause that connected them with the world. That is what the millennials are. And then after the GI generation, you have the silent generation. And they were called the silents because they really didn't have a cause of their own. They were riding on the coattails of the GI generation, just extending on what the GIs had already done. So their worldview, the way of living their lives, it was just an extension of that. So if Strauss and Howe are correct, then Gen Z is analogous to the silent generation, and they're just gonna come along and ride on the coattails of this huge shift, you know, these new Copernicans of the millennials, which is kind of helpful when you're talking about doing ministry because what works for one will probably work for the other. Yeah. And we can just begin to come up with new methods and new ways of doing ministry that if it works for the millennials, you can also kind of rope in Gen Z knowing it will work for them as well. I mean, what we do know is they will be fully postmodern because we've crossed the Rubicon and millennials are the first fully postmodern generation. So Z will for sure continue that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Sarah, where, where could people get more information on, on Michelin University? Uh, what is the, the web address? Or how would people get in contact? Yeah, it's just uh, missionaluniversity.com, I think. Oh, wait, I'm so embarrassed. Hold on, I should know this from memory. That's right. But everyone's everyone's website now is a little bit yeah, different. People can search missionaluniversity.com.uk.co.ua. I'm looking it up. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a fantastic idea. Missional dot university. Missional dot oh. university. Okay. No cool. dot coms or anything. Yeah. Very cool. And, our, so I, and, I, um, I was going to ask, what are you, what are, what are you, what are you teaching? What are you, what is your faculty that you, that you're so in? I'm professor of millennial faith and culture. And so I'm currently developing coursework all about emerging leadership, you know, and how, what makes millennials tick? How can we um, help engage them and equip them to be tomorrow's leaders? So I honestly, I'm just at the very beginning stages of that because I'm still 
finished doing some little minor corrections on my <laughs> dissertation. So uh, even though I am Dr. Blakeney, I haven't graduated yet. So um, to be continued, I can't wait to, to know more about the nuts and bolts of how we can raise up the millennials as tomorrow's leaders. So I'd love to come back and tell you more of what I'm discovering along the way as I get into this. So it's interesting. Yeah, that'd be so, great. Cause it, go ahead, Gary, go ahead. I, I'm just going to say it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, but I, the, I think it, the, the topic is, is so important right now. As, just as I see the interactions, it's maybe not as acute for me here in Spain. Uh, although we work, uh, you know, Z and I, we lead a lot of millennials who come over either short term or, you know, longer term now. And it's something we, it was something we, a few years ago we realized, oh, we kind of got to figure this out a little bit uh, or, or start thinking about it more. Um, but but I, 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 when I look at the states and, and especially particularly crew in the U.S., which is an organization that is very embedded in the culture of where it's at, you know, usually in some sense, but it's, it, I, I can see that it, it I think it's struggling in some ways uh, to come to grips with this, this whole bigger question. Uh, so I think it just, it's an incredibly, yeah, incredibly important, important topic, I think. Uh, well, I do think very- the crew is so well positioned. I mean, y'all already have been out there in the mission field on the, the street, quote unquote, of universities, you know, the education sphere. So it, it's like the infrastructure is there. You're already doing it. And um, so I'd even love to talk to y'all maybe about developing a partnership where we can, Missional University and crew can kind of cross-pollinate with one another in a way that might be a mutual blessing. So that might be something yeah. to explore. I'm in. Let's let's do uh, let's do uh, some uh, some experiences designed around the Camino de Santiago, which is which is why I'm yeah, moving Pilgrimage. to northern Spain. So we can we can we can design some stuff. Um, I we, but it's actually so that your your comment there actually gets me gets me thinking a little bit about. It seems to me that maybe it might be true, and I'd like your I'd like your thoughts on this. Um, the if the millennials definitely want to be involved in something meaningful. But it doesn't seem to me that they necessarily want to or need to be attached to um, traditional institutional meaningful. So because that's that that's what Hirsch is saying. That's what everyone is saying is is traditionally what we've said is, hey, come and be involved with this really big traditional or institutional movement. And what it seems to me is the millennial would like to say, no, I, I want to be a movement where I am. So I'll be a movement of 10 people. I don't, size doesn't matter to me. Uh, and, and I think crew knows this crew has actually come out with some reports on that, but is, does that seem to jive with what, what you're finding is that they, they're not going to necessarily be attached to the traditional, Oh, now I'm identifying with this traditional institution. So in our case, crew or whatever else, but rather we need, as an institution, we need to have the perspective of may a thousand flowers bloom, of go where you are planted and thrive where you are rather than, hey, come and be a part of this really great thing that we're doing. In which case it seems to me, if that's true, we need to be okay with the fact that our name and our institution is may shrink in some sense 
in the way we've traditionally experienced its growth. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I think it goes back to the idea of the institutional church having a corporation structure where millennials don't want to enter into a body where they give up a sense of autonomy or power and they're just letting the, the quote-unquote leaders do it for them. They want to roll up their sleeves and they want to be part of a grassroots effort where they feel like they have a voice and they're making a difference. And so um, that, that's great. That lends itself very well. And in fact, one of my main findings was something called, uh, I think this is maybe Hirsch's term as well, action learning discipleship, where millennials stuck around when you immediately got them serving and involved. And so in other words, not even a much training or earning their, you know, hanging around in a vetting process and then going through a vetting process. It was first Sunday, you get them involved and then you disciple them along the way. In some ways, that's a lot harder and it takes a lot bigger commitment and a lot more, you know, again, relational time and investing in the person of the millennial. But they they want to be involved. So if they feel like they have to come and earn their place somehow and not be seen for their inherent value, they're going to they're going to bail immediately. But what both field work sites, but particularly the church in downtown, what they did so well is they mobilized millennials immediately for service, regardless of their spiritual maturity or even regardless of their salvation status, which is a little radical. Mm -hmm. And then discipled them, walked alongside them and discipled them along the way. And gosh, that's just how Jesus did it. You know, that's fascinating because you just put words to something that I've, I've been trying to figure out for about 10 years and someone asked me, we, we don't see a ton of fruit in Sweden. That may not serve as much surprise for you, but we've always had a, a good, what I'll say, staff retention. So, you know, we'll get interns who come over and then a good number of those have stayed on staff and have stayed for a good number of years. And someone recent, not 10 years ago or so, asked and crew, hey, y'all seem to have really good numbers. Why do you think that is? Because it's not because you're seeing all this um, results. And um, my wife and I have a, we, we got here and it was just essentially her and I and a, a local uh, staff member. And um, we, we kind of throw people in the deep end on day one. We just kind of go, look, there, there's where you buy your phone. There's where you get your bus. There, go figure it out. But that we've always had that attitude. First staff meeting, I look at the I look at our interns and I say, "You need to have as much voice in this conversation as I do, because no one's figured this place out enough." And I think unwittingly, I we may have hit on a good formula for people to go, "Hey, I have agency, and I have I'm appreciated here for for my input, whether or not they had experience or not." Um, I don't think that's translated into actually seeing Swedes mobilize into anything necessarily, but that's a different problem. But it, but it's fascinating because that is really the case. It's just kind of look, give people the opportunity to serve, and they will they want to rise to the challenge, um, which is which yeah. is fascinating. And then figure out how to disciple along the way. I think that's a key thing. Are you discipling along the way? Are you journeying with those people? Because if you're not, if you're just filling seats, then 
one, you're not doing them any good, but you're also not doing yourself any good. Um, and that, that seems to be a key thing is to journey, continually journey along the way. Gosh, it sounds like you're already doing it and, and seeing so. that. That's wonderful. The title of my dissertation was Calling Out the Gold. And that's a quote from one of my millennial interviewees who said, this church is so good about calling out the gold in me. Mm. And oh she was one of the ones who gave the example of, of going to the church and they said, what are you good at? Or what do you like? What do you want to be involved in? And she said, you know, I've always wanted to do graphic arts. They said, well, let's, let's train you. Let's hook you up with another member here and um, let's really give you some um, experience in graphic arts. So now she's doing the, all the graphic arts for the, you know, the screens at the front of the church. She's using that in her job, her Monday to Friday job but also using that as a platform for ministering to others. So she said, what they're so good at is calling out the gold in me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a great way to say it, because it is, it's coming to the millennials saying, you have inherent value. You have a set of gifts and abilities that God has placed there. And it's our job to help you discover those and pull those out. It's not about joining a corporation where you sit and you just are a recipient of information until we feel like you've warmed your seat long enough where you can, you by osmosis have learned enough facts about the Bible where now you can be, you know, serve and volunteer somewhere. It is, it is no, you have value now. Let's pull that out and let's develop it along the way. So then mentorship becomes huge. It's not just discipleship, but it's mentorship. It's that's how an older generation can it's find the gold and mentor a young person into something while while they're journeying. That that to me makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh Dr. Sarah Blanky, sorry. Uh this has been a wow, just a great conversation. Uh yeah. I have one yeah. final question for you. Uh so as you look to the future, you look to where we are as a church, uh, are you optimistic, pessimistic? I am so optimistic. And I mean, granted, I'm a little bit of an apologist for the millennial generation. So I may see them with a halo that's not actually there. <laughs> but I am so, so optimistic because I think what we've done what recent research is showing is we're diagnosing the problem, which is it's that we're making this huge shift epistemologically. So the problem is not, a, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for new methods and strategies and that, and a um, almost like translating a new language. We need to translate the gospel and actually ecclesiology into a new language of the millennials. So yes, that's a problem, but it's a problem that is exciting for practitioners who want to make the, the gospel relevant to a new generation. Hmm. And then of course, the Lord has always promised that he would prepare his bride um, without spot or wrinkle or blemish until the day of his return. So there's a lot of lamenting going on out there and a lot of hand wringing, 
about this generation and about the future of the church. But I think as long as we take this opportunity, no, let me rephrase that, even in spite of whether we take this opportunity or not, the Lord's going to raise up the next generation of the church because that's what he's already promised. So the challenge is, do we want to involve, get involved where he is already working? How can we get involved where he is already working? Because the best thing is just to step into the flow of what he is already doing among this generation. So I think it's a really, really exciting time and a time of sort of wet, wet concrete where we can write some things for the future and set the foundation of the future if we use discernment and a lot of prayer and a lot of openness to how the Holy Spirit is leading us during this time. I love it. Very cool. Very cool. Also, um, Sarah, you have a book ready for more how millennials like you are destined to change the church. So people can uh, also get that on Amazon. And we mentioned missional, uh, missional university as well. Uh, is there any other place you're out there in the world? Uh, that people could connect with you if they, if they would like to. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. What are you, what are you on? <laughs> yes, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, although I never check those. Um, okay. I've been so locked away in my writing cave for the past couple of years. So I do hope to turn my dissertation into a book. So that will be okay, forthcoming cool. sooner rather than later, I hope. And I will definitely keep you in the loop with that information. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this, this work, this research, uh, this, this, I just, I know just Bear and I spent a lot of time talking and I can tell both of us have gotten a lot out of this. And so I'm sure that our listeners will as well. And, yeah. and, and as always, it's always just fun to do cool things with good friends. So uh, yeah. thanks for, thanks for coming on and, and being a part and uh, we will oh, we'll definitely have you another time. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be with y'all. And Garrick, it is so much fun to do ministry together as friends, yeah. you know. So thanks for the opportunity. And thank you for all y'all are doing for the kingdom, really. You're the ones on the front lines. So I really, really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Just two Texans stumbling through the dark of the European <laughs> wilderness. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, it's been awesome. a pleasure. Thank stay, you. Stay warm or cold in Texas. I don't. The yeah. weather's the weather's warm now, so stay cold or stay cool. <laughs> stay cooler. It's, it's, it's yeah, stay it'll cooler. be it'll be hot soon. Yeah. Do us yeah. a favor, Sarah. I if you are if you are a lover of Texas barbecue, go and enjoy some Texas barbecue for the both of us. They've got Himes, right? Is that the oh one? Yes, Barrett. My husband and I go about once or twice a week to get brisket. Fantastic. I so we will close with this an homage to Texas barbecue. I do Texas barbecue here in Sweden. My neighbors think I'm crazy. It's starting to warm up a little bit, so I think I may have to go out into the courtyard and start smoking some meat. Start smoking some some, some meat. Yeah, I send pictures. I send pictures of the results to Garrick and mock him. Yeah, <laughs> <I'm a bit laughs> jealous. <laughs> All right, Sarah. Thank you so much. <laughs>